Good morning, church. The ninth lesson comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. It is Zechariah's response to the news that he would be the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Luke, the author of this gospel, was a physician. That special training and giftedness comes through in various ways. His care, for instance, for History. We know in the preface to his gospel how he thoroughly researched everything that he writes down. But we see it especially in the compassion that he has for those who are vulnerable, those who are ill, those who are oppressed, those who are at risk. He is compassionate. He has the best bedside manner. He's especially attentive to women, women who are in hardship. Sometimes it's called the gospel of women. So many stories are there about the Lord Jesus' attention to women who were overlooked and discarded. So it's no surprise that he would pay attention to Elizabeth and Mary. Not only were they significant women in the redemption story, but they were women who were vulnerable in various ways, where Mary as a very young girl and Elizabeth as a woman who, despite her longing, could not have children. So Luke, the physician, it seems to me, looking for one word that would capture everything that he saw his beloved Jesus bringing to a world of vulnerable, oppressed, fearful, guilty, 
hopeless people. What would that, what was that word? And Luke found it and used it often. It is the word salvation. It's used three times in our text. He uses it 10 times to refer to Jesus as a savior. He refers to Jesus as a savior 10 times in his gospel. All the other gospels combined only use that word one time. The word salvation occurs in Luke's gospel 17 times. And in his his uh, historical record of the early days of the church in the book of Acts, 13 times. So 40 times altogether, G- Luke refers to Jesus or the work that he came to bring as Savior, salvation. And, and what was that? What is that salvation? It was salvation. It was salvation for those who needed salvation from all that afflicts and affects and oppresses humanity and continues to do so. So when, when Zechariah gets this news that his son is going to be the forerunner for the Savior, the one who is going to save his people from, from everything, he exalts in that and he names the major enemies, the major concerns of those who are estranged from God. He will be one who brings salvation for the weak, he says. He is one who will bring salvation for the fearful. He's one who will bring salvation for the guilty, and he's one who brings salvation for the hopeless. Now, if you have a problem today, something you need to be saved from that is outside of one of those four categories, please see me. I mean this after the service. You say something's not mentioned. You please see me. The scripture has something for you. I know, but it's hard to imagine anything outside of these four categories of desperation, of something that we need salvation from, weakness, fear guilt and hopelessness. And the condition for receiving each one is the same. It's faith in Christ. It's open hands to say, Jesus, please give it to me. Salvation for the weak, verses 68 to 70. He says he has raised up for us a horn of salvation, a common expression in the Bible, a reference to an animal with a, with a, a horn, something that is the, the focal point of his strength and that which can do most damage to an enemy. He has become the focus, the concentration of the strength we need to save us from our weakness. Zechariah could speak from authority, from experience. Zechariah knew physical weakness. Though he and his wife were righteous people, they had prayed constantly for to have a child. They could not have a baby. He knew weakness. He was also a man who knew weakness of faith. Luke tells us that he was part of a, of, of a company of priests. 
And these priests had 24 divisions and they throughout the year would rotate service at the temple, each, each division taking a week, once a year. And, and, uh, and so Zechariah was one who was faithful in his service at the temple. And he had prayed, we, we hear from Luke, he'd prayed often, he'd prayed often to, for, for the Lord to give them a child. And the Lord had not answered. And apparently, Zechariah, though he's a faithful man doing his work, he had, he had grown he had grown weak in his faith, the, 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 the belief that God could answer his need in his prayer, such that when the angel showed up, and it's not just any angel, we're told in the immediately preceding verses, it was, it was Gabriel, one of the archangels. Gabriel was sent personally to interrupt the service that Zechariah was conducting and to tell him, Zechariah, your wife's going to have a baby. And Zechariah is afraid, first of all, as he should be, of Gabriel representing the very presence of God. This is an archangel. He is afraid. But even that fear of knowing he's in the presence of God could not overcome immediately the weakness of his faith by which he said effectively, that can't be. My wife is too old. I'm too old. We can't have a baby. Gabriel shut his lips. You will not speak again until your lips are opened with this song because you're going to have a baby. While salvation is the big theme for Luke in all of his, in his gospel and his, and his um, history, he explains in the very center of our passage how that salvation works. It's by the mercy of God. If we had time, I could graph out this this passage and and show you how the beginning and the end parallel each other and then just a little bit lower in within the two sections they they mirror each other and this mirroring occurs until there is this this salvation frame but in the center of the frame is God's mercy as he promised that's what Zechariah says his mercy as he promised How can God save you from weakness? Because it's his specialty. He's merciful at the core of his being, just as at the center of this passage, at the core of his being, who he is, his characterization, what makes him tick is his mercy. And he has always promised to be merciful to the weak. He answered that promise by bringing Jesus to weak people. It doesn't matter what your weakness is. Admit it. Tell Jesus about it and say, save me. This week I was intrigued to read about Bill Wilson, one of the founders of of, um, Alcoholics Anonymous and one of the co-founders and 
he, uh, some years, a short time before his death, he released his correspondence. And one of his letters, uh, his exchanges was with Carl Jung, the uh, famous uh, Swiss analytical psychologist. And he said, I, I want to write you, Dr. Jung, and thank you for helping to found Alcoholics Anonymous. It was sort of a tongue-in-cheek letter because what happened was uh, one of his co-founders had gone to Jung for for uh, psychoanalysis and had gone to him for a long time and spent a lot of money. And finally, uh, Dr. Young said, uh, I can't do anything else for you. I can keep taking your money, but I can't help you anymore because you are a hopeless drunk. And the man cried. I said, well, wh- wh- what am I supposed to do? And Young, I don't know how serious he was, said, well, you should go get yourself a religious conversion. Not knowing any better, he talked to someone who led him to Christ. And when he confessed his weaknesses, his desperate need for Christ to save him from this weakness, he he was saved. And then he shared the word with Bill Wilson. And together they said, I know what we need to do. We need to go find other alcoholics, other drunks. And we'll start with, we'll say, my name is Roland H. My name is Bill W. We are drunks. And we're here to tell you that you can be free of your addiction. And it starts with surrendering. Because even though Bill Wilson rejected his friend at first, his friend said, you know, Christ can, Christ can set you free from your addiction. But you've got, first of all, you've got to confess that you're weak and he would not do it until he nearly died. And one in, in the evening, he cried out and he said, God, if you're there, will you help me, please? That's all he said. And he woke up the new morning and told his wife, my addiction is broken. I'm a free man discovered he he was weak and he needed Christ and Christ's people, other people. Salvation for the fearful. Jesus came to bring salvation to the fearful. He says, uh, I'm going to bring salvation from your enemies. Who is an enemy? Not someone necessarily who cuts you off in traffic or just doesn't get you, give you what, you what you want. An enemy, according to the Bible, is someone who tries to prevent you from following Christ. Anyone or anything or any thought that tries to keep you, discourage you from following the Lord, that is an enemy. And Jesus came to set you free. From all those enemies. Including. Fear. Fear. Fear which cripples an individual. Fear which can cripple a church. Fear which can cripple a society. Fear which can make us mean. Fear which can make us regard other people as enemies when they're not enemies. They're not trying to prevent us from following Christ. They just disagree with us. 2024 is coming. I'll tell you as a pastor, I dread it as I do every four years and have dreaded every four years for my whole ministry. Because it is that time, it is that 
kind of spiritual leap year in which Christians lose their minds and forget that God is sovereign and Christ is a savior and Christ has saved his people and prospered his people through oppressive governments and pogroms for millennia. Let us not be fearful people. But remember Christ as the horn of our salvation, who has brought Christ, who is a king and will rule and reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. We're on the winning side. Please let us remember and live like it, regardless of what happens. Heard from testimony from Drew Holcomb this week, who said, that the greatest relief from fear that gripped him seven years ago has occurred through gratitude. Just waking up every morning and saying, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. And he said, you'll be surprised how many things there are to be thankful for. Jesus, thank you for being king. God, thank you for being sovereign. Thank you for life and health and well-being and for being faithful. All of these, there's endless gratitude for a savior who saves us from our enemies is the antidote to fear. Then there's salvation for the guilty. 75 to 77 you don't, there are any number of ways that we could deny our guilt. We come up with all kinds of words to replace sin. I didn't tell a lie, I prevaricated. Or I, 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 I wasn't, I didn't lose my temper, I'm just tired. Or I'm not an angry person, I'm just passionate. Whatever it is, we are skilled at relabeling our sin and denying our guilt. And in part because we're afraid if we admit our guilt, what's going to happen to us? It could be terrifying. But Jesus said, I came to be numbered with the transgressors. If you want to be numbered with Jesus, if you want to be in his company, if you want to be in his party, you have to admit that you're a transgressor. If you're not a transgressor, you don't get admission. That's the only ticket. That's the ticket needed to enter into his party, into his home, into his eternal life. It's the ticket of saying, my name is George Robertson. I'm a transgressor. I'm guilty. Of everything in the Bible, every category of sin that is labeled in the Bible of breaking all the Ten Commandments, I am guilty. And Jesus will say, finally, you've admitted what I've known forever. Now, let me apply the blood of my righteousness to that and make you righteous and unite you to myself. John Stott said he talked to a psychiatrist many years ago and said, I could empty 75% of the, of the psychiatric beds in hospitals across Great Britain if I could just convince people how they could be relieved of their guilt.
Jesus came to save from guilt. Confess it and he'll forgive. And Jesus came to save us from hopelessness. Hopelessness is the pandemic of our nation and of our whole world. Hopelessness and loneliness live together. None of the saviors that have been promised by our culture or by worldviews have worked or are working. And so people turn in mass to en masse to self-destruction in destructive ways or ways to try to, to quell their consciences or, or numb the pain of their hopelessness. But Jesus came to the hopeless. He came to give hope. He, 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 he came to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. You you say, don't you know what's happening in the world? Don't you know what surrounds us? This whole cosmos is trying to kill us. This, This nation is melting down. Whatever it is that you are looking at and you're despairing over a personal problem, a personal illness, a relational issue, whatever it is, Jesus came to say, it is not hopeless. It is never hopeless because I have come. God has become flesh and in becoming flesh, he entered into our hopelessness and he may not answer our hopelessness in the time we wish, but he will answer that hopelessness because he's bringing his kingdom. And when the last person is forgiven and saved and brought into his family. He will return and he will bring his kingdom and blot out every tear and heal every disease and correct and end all evil. However difficult it is for any of us to believe that that it's possible to have hope in this world, we have, to, we have to embrace, especially in this season, that Jesus Christ has taken on flesh in order to enter into all of our suffering and destroy it from the inside out because he lives, stands at the right hand of the Father. It is never hopeless. I've been reading a fair bit lately about the yellow fever epidemic in Memphis, 1878. And firsthand accounts of hopelessness of those few who stayed, the 30 of the 50,000 citizens at the time, 30,000 fled. The majority of those got sick, the rest died a few thousand from other places in the country out of love for Christ came into our city to help, to, to nurture the sick, to bury the dead. It was a horrific scourge. And not only in our city, but in surrounding areas and then in other parts of the world. And, 
and uh, wiping out those trying to build the Panama Canal or wiping out those stationed in Cuba. America was desperate to find a cure. They sent their top doctors to, to Havana to figure out a cure, Walter Reed and James Carroll and others. Finally, there was, a, there was a Cuban doctor there named Carlos Finlay who, who said, I think, the, I think the illness is brought by mosquitoes. And everybody mocked him, made fun of him, called him the mosquito man. Eventually, Dr. Reed said, we're in such desperate straits, maybe we should just try the mosquito man's theory. While he was away in Washington, his colleague, without anybody knowing, knowing it, James Carroll, allowed himself to be bitten by a mosquito. Another soldier so, so inspired by that example allowed himself to be bitten by the mosquito and they, they got yellow fever. They eventually lived. James Carroll was never the same. Carlos Finlay said, this is such a controversial idea that a mosquito is the carrier of this disease that it would take incontrovertible, an incontrovertible demonstration to prove that this is the case. James Carroll and William Dean decided to provide that incontrovertible evidence at the risk of their own lives. And because they did, from the inside out, they provided hope for that hopeless disease. No matter what questions you have about what you're going through, you may know that it is never hopeless because Jesus has entered into your suffering, suffered death for it. And was raised victoriously over it, bearing the same, the scars to prove it, and providing incontrovertible evidence that He is the Savior. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to seek and save that which was lost. Provide salvation for those who will admit they need it today, which is true for all of us. And for those who have already asked you to save us, we pray that we would continue to return to you and depend totally on your grace because you are the promised one who is always merciful. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen.